this computer. Uh, okay, recording. And I have a full 9% of battery power, so I'm completely prepared and ready for this. That's very good. 9% is all that we need. Keep episode short, everybody. Thanks for joining us. Remember to follow us on Twitter. And <laughs> okay, let's see. What else? What else we gotta do? We gotta do D and D. How did you D and D? Did you? I already did my D and D. I don't know how to do. Yeah, it. I know. I called you, and it was. <laughs> <laughs> for anybody who's wondering what we're talking about right now, apparently the Zoom account that we have is uh, changed the meeting ID number on us. So. If we sound disheveled and disorganized, that's what we're figuring out. We appreciate the uh, listeners' patience with us. Um, we're trying to reduce on our editing time uh, to kind of help the, the flow of getting stuff on our website. And uh, as a result, you guys are going to sometimes hear some some nice, fun, witty banter between uh, myself and my alluring and charming co-host, Joseph Stanford. Thank you. Yes. Okay, I think I think we're ready to, to roll through it. You want to start us off? Very good. Well, ladies and gentlemen, as I was just saying, saying thank you for joining us again. This is the Roses and Rhetoric podcast. This marks, Joe, this marks episode number eight, which means that we have now been doing this program for two months. Um, I think I speak for both of us when I said that we've had a lot of fun doing it. Uh, definitely fun to see the good engagement numbers on our website. Um, I'll just give that again. It's uh, www.rosesandrhetoric.com. And then also our Twitter, which is at roses underscore rhetoric. Uh, but two months, and like I said, good numbers on the website, good engagement. Um, we're happy to see that. Glad to see that you guys are finding our content interesting. Do remember that we, of course, always welcome feedback, um, not only on the website, but also on, on Twitter. And uh, I think right now the, the volume is, is growing, but it's still low enough that I think if anybody were to reach out to us, we would be able to respond. Uh, so definitely feel free to do so. Now, today's episode uh, will follow somewhat a similar format. Um, I think uh, we have some written stuff that we'll go over, uh, some essays. But before getting to that, I had a couple of smaller topics that I kind of came up during the week that I didn't think were worthy of an essay, but that I wanted to talk about a little bit on the program as well. Um, so, but before doing that, Joe, if you wanted to add anything about that, two months strong on the uh, podcast, kind of get your thoughts so far. Oh yeah, two months strong. Haven't missed a weekend yet. Starting to see some some incredible numbers up on the site. So, very appreciative to all the to the dedicated listeners. Very good. Well, I and Joe, did you get something written for this week, or are we just going to do a little a little free ball action? You soon put me on the spot, why don't you? <laughs> no, it's okay. Um, we'll we'll go back and cut it out. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we will. No, uh, my, my notes are more uh, mental this week rather than physical. Very good, very good. Well, let me let me start with with a couple of things. I I, I don't uh, consider myself to be any kind of uh, movie buff or anything. Joe and I both have some very good friends who certainly do fall into that category. But I saw a movie last weekend that I had seen now for the second time that I think really might be a contender for the best movie ever made. And really? I want to I wanna clarify what I mean by that. I don't mean that it's my favorite movie. It definitely is not my favorite movie. Um, there are movies that I enjoy watching more. But it's a movie that I've now seen twice, and I really can't find a single flaw in it. The acting is perfect. The directing is perfect. The storytelling, the plot, it's engaging, it's gripping. 
The movie that I'm referring to is a Paul Thomas Anderson movie by the name of The Master. And I'll just give a little bit of a background of the movie. I won't spoil it. Um, but there is, at some point in the future, I actually want to do like a whole episode on this movie because I think there's so many layers to it that would be fun to dive into. It ties into persuasion, into you know, kind of finding your way through life. Um, it turns into uh, kind of this, I did this man's search for meaning and the various paths that it takes. But it basically follows a person who's down, down on his luck. He's a, uh, a World War II veteran, a sailor out of the Navy, who's definitely made a fair number of poor life choices, obviously has some, some mental issues, who ends up kind of becoming uh, enamored with this uh, new age guru type character played by Philip Seymour Hoffman. Uh, who does, I mean, a phenomenal job with, with this, uh, with this role and the way that they capture the relationship between those two characters, the ways that it, that it ties into all of these different levels of how those two characters interact with each other. Um, it's just a phenomenal movie. And so I, I, and I really don't have any more things to, to say about it right now than just that, that I think it might be the best movie ever made. I ran that opinion by a couple of our movie buff friends. Um, I don't know if they would say that it was the best movie ever made, but they definitely agreed with me on the on the merits of it being a strong contender for that role. So if anybody's looking for a good movie to watch, I think it's currently on Netflix. Definitely check out The Master. And uh, like I said, I really don't have much more to say about it right now. I will in the future. I want to give our listeners a chance to watch it before talking about it on here. Uh, but it was just such a good movie. I would... Uh, I, I just had to mention it on this podcast, The Master. So totally great. Joaquin Phoenix, uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman, Amy Adams, two other people, uh, a great movie. Yeah, Joaquin Phoenix, he's, a, he's the perfect actor for whenever you need an, a character that has mental disorders. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And he, and, and it, it, this is definitely a movie where his, I don't know if you would call it an, an ability, but I mean, you know, I, I guess you would, but his ability to, to shape shift, I mean, he loses a ton of weight for this role. I mean, he looks super skinny. I mean, it's, it's, it's the, the role of just, uh, I'm, 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 I'm sure it took a few years off his life, but, uh, in, as far as, uh, artistic achievements concerned, I, I think, uh, I think it was worth it. I mean, it was just such a powerful role. And, uh, I mean, it's, it's, just, it, it's hard to explain without getting into the plot, but I mean, if you could just imagine, that like every scene in this movie, these these two actors, uh, and and also and uh, to also include Amy Adams, who who also does a phenomenal job in her role as well. Mm. Um, the 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 way that they portray psychological torment is the best I've ever seen it done. I mean, it's 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 scary how lifelike some of these scenes are. And for, for reasons that I want to get into in a future episode, I think the relationship between uh, Joaquin Phoenix's character and between Philip Seymour Hoffman uh, is just such a perfect uh, juxtaposition between confidence and uh, maybe not even self-doubt, but just the, the way that they, that they understand each other, the way, that, the way that one character understands the other character just makes for some really gripping moments in the, in the film. Uh, it's, it's, it's heartbreaking at times. It's, 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 it's definitely a tough watch at times, but it's definitely worth it. And I just, I, I had to say it on the program, I think it's one of the best movies ever made just in terms of the, of the, the craft of movie making. This has to be a top contender for that spot. That's, that's great. Well, I'll have to check it out. You know, I, I watched a movie this weekend too, or maybe it was a few days ago. And, uh, along the same lines, a very serious movie, uh, 
very, uh, very conversational about mental health. And the movie's called Borat too. Mm, mm. Right, right. <laughs> also kind of a very gripping foreign policy analysis, I think too. <laughs> yeah. <it's something. laughs> have you, have you seen Borat too? I, I, I am such a fan of Sacha Baron Conan. I think he's a genius. I think he's phenomenal. I love Borat. I love Bruno. Um, but can continue. Yes, you're right. Borat definitely would be considered a, a psychologically tormenting film, especially if you're watching it with your parents, in which case it's absolutely psychologically <laughs> tormenting. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely would not recommend with parents or anyone over the age of maybe 35. <laughs> <for> that, <laughs> that matter. Uh, but I don't know. Borat, it wasn't as definitely was not as good as the first one. Um, I think they tried to play off a lot of the same jokes and it got a little politically curious in a lot of parts of it that I don't know, didn't quite feel right. But yeah, Sasha Baron Cohen, I started in Borat 1 and Bruno and The Dictator and all that. But he, I, I went, ended up going down a YouTube hole just watching different videos of him and I, I can't make up my mind if I like him or not. Like, he kind of seems like an asshole in a lot of ways, which normally I'm pretty supportive of. Right, right. But sometimes it feels like it's in a little bit of a cheap way. Like, I mean, there was this one video where he was right after the dictator came out. So he was all decked out in his, like, white dictator military uniform and his big top hat and all his badges. And uh, <laughs> he was on the red carpet of, I think it was the Emmys or the Golden Globes. I think it was the Emmys. And he... Uh, came and he had like an entourage of like two models next to him dressed in like communist green uniforms and then uh, he was holding holding an urn that contained the remains of the late uh, Kim Jong-il um, he claimed that that was his his former tennis doubles partner <laughs> and he was carrying it around on the red carpet and then uh, he was getting interviewed by Ryan Seacrest I don't know who approached who but He's talking to Ryan Seacrest and then, uh, you know, Sasha's totally in dictator character. And he, <laughs> during halfway through the interview, he just spills this entire urn of Kim Jong, the late Kim Jong Il's ashes all over Ryan Seacrest in his tuxedo. And uh, I, you don't see Ryan Seacrest get pissed off often. In fact, I don't think I've ever seen him get pissed <laughs> off until this point. Like, he was generally like pissed at this dude. And then security came and like pulled off Sasha Barako and the whole time security was pulling away. He was, he was still in character. Kim Jong, Kim Jong Il, Kim Jong Il, you know, and it was, right. it was pretty funny, but it was still like, there's still something about it. that just didn't really settle right with me. You know, so it's have funny. Have you seen that clip or? I, <laughs> yes, I have. And, and you're right. And it, it's, I mean, I, in moments like that, my, my rule is I always pretend that it's real, right? Because like anybody could say, well, maybe Ryan was in on it. Maybe, maybe not. I always just assume that the person was not in on it and that it really was like a joke. And you're right. I mean, I've never, Ryan Seacrest was completely pissed in that, in that scene. I know exactly what you're talking about. And uh, I mean, it was definitely, I, I definitely found it funny, but you're right. And it, it's kind of, you know, let me, let me get your take on this. And I know that this is a, something that you and I have talked about privately before, but there are these people on YouTube whose whole channel is dedicated to these practical jokes where it's like candid camera type stuff. I mean, where it, mm -hmm. how, how mad would you be if you were caught in on one of these things? And obviously it would depend on the level of, of the, of the uh, joke. Right. But it's like, at some point, you know, it's like, is it really fair to just, you know, get somebody on camera and embarrass them and then 
you know, share their worst moment with the world. I mean, that, that feels kind of uh, cheap to me almost. Yeah. And, and that's one of the things that, that uh, Sasha Baron Cohen does is he picks different characters and like Ali G is another character that he takes, which right. is like some like British hip hop journalist looking dude. And uh, I mean, it's, it's a pretty funny character, but he's like in disguise and he goes and he interviews these like high, high profile people. For example, there's an interview of him with Donald Trump. And <laughs> I think he gets through like 30 seconds with Trump before Trump realizes that this guy is just like, full of shit or whatever and he right. just gets up and leave trump just gets up and like walks off i think uh ali g was pitching the uh the the ice cream glove a glove that you could wear when eating ice cream so that you don't get ice cream on your hands as a as a next uh, billion yeah, dollar uh, idea but right yeah it sounds like a winner to me but yeah but in in borat 2 there's a scene and this is what kind of got me started going down this youtube hole is with uh rudy giuliani so Borat's daughter in this movie. I think she's actually 19 years old, but she plays like a 15 year old in the movie. Uh, is interviewing Rudy Giuliani, and I think that what happened is like Rudy Giuliani didn't know that this was for a movie. Like I think they just straight up like went up to him and lied and said like, "Oh, this is the BBC or this is uh, some Middle East something that's going to interview you." So he thought it was a real interview, but uh, I think he he essentially got set up to the point where like. The girl that was interviewing him like asked him to go back to the bedroom for drinks and then they were in the in the back bedroom and there was a point where like he lays down on he's sitting down on the bed and then he leans back to like tuck in his microphone and there's like a quick like scene where like his hands down his pants and then uh naturally that scene went viral all over twitter and all over the internet i don't know if you ever saw it it was about a month ago mm. it, was, it was pretty popular a few weeks ago and everyone's saying like, oh, Giuliani pulled this girl back to this hotel and, you know, sexually assaulted her. Here's the picture as proof. And it's like, this doesn't quite feel right. You kind of just like set this dude up and like now you're running this fake story about him. But as you were saying, yeah, to, it goes back to those lines of exploiting these high profile people. And it wasn't even Borat that was doing the interview. It was this girl, you know, this no name actress that was out there that was setting him up. So it's not like... It's not like Rudy could have been like, oh, this guy kind of looks like Sasha Baron Cohen. Like, no. I mean, obviously, Sasha Baron Cohen, like, ran through the room, like, wearing a man thong or something later on in the scene. But uh, there was no sign of him before that. So, I don't know. It seemed a little fishy. It's kind of funny, though. Yeah, I think it's – I mean, it's going to be interesting to see, you know, what – putting putting aside him in this particular instance, just the, the idea that you could get somebody on camera, edit it how you want, make it go viral quickly. I mean, it's like, is anybody safe in that kind of world where, you know, you could have, I mean, I even think, think of something that's completely made up, like with all this deep fake technology, you know, it's, it's still a little, you know, a little Mm. silly right now, but I mean, it's not hard to imagine. It's pretty good. (laughs) It's, I I, I will say this. It has, it has gotten really good the past few years, Uh, definitely the past few years. And it's, it, I do get nervous that it's so easy for something to go viral. And, and the thing is, if you think about it, it's like the more extreme the, the video, like in real life, the more extreme something is, the more you, you would want to be, you know, that you would want to verify before sharing it. Right. But at the same time, like what makes something go viral is how egregious and offensive it is. So it's like, you have like the worst kind of filter mechanism or like the more, like the most outrageous deep fake 
you would expect to get the most attention, you know, obviously up to a point, you know, I don't think anyone's going to believe that like, you know, someone's an alien or something, but, but you, you could imagine pushing it pretty far with, with the deep fake and in a way, in terms of just number of shares, you would be, re- you, you would be rewarded for making it, you know, more outlandish. And so I, I mean, and, and that again, with all this stuff with like handed cameras and all that stuff, I mean, it, it just, it's, it, it definitely seems, um, very unfair to the people that are at the at the other end of it which is obviously the point i mean that that's kind of the the humor you know and i they have these shows on tv that go back now a few years you know came in camera type shows where you know you put someone in an embarrassing situation like at a restaurant and the waitress or waiter keeps on messing up the order and you see like how long until the person freaks out i mean ashley kutcher had a had a whole show about this where they would get celebrities and they would like try to piss them off until they finally blew up or something but you know it, it just it, it just it, it's it doesn't seem like it's being very generous to, to these people which is uh, again the point but at the same time that makes me question like how how valuable is this really in terms of information or even as as uh, entertainment but uh, yeah. definitely, I'll have to check out. Uh, I, I have not seen Borat too, and I'm, I'm not familiar with. Uh, at least, I'm not too familiar with the uh, Giuliani clip we're talking about. I, I heard some noise about it a few months ago, but I didn't pay much attention to it. But uh, yeah, that, that sounds interesting. I'll have to I'll have to look into that a little more. Let me uh, change gears a little bit. I have a couple of things on my list that I wanted to 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 get to today, um, and this is something I wanted to bring up. I, yeah. I guess. Uh, a couple episodes ago, but it was, it was a, uh, and I, I won't say it's a quote. I'm not going to try to quote it directly, but it was an idea from Nassim Taleb. You know, I haven't mentioned him in a few episodes. I figured I might mention his name again. I, I, I mentioned him so sparingly on this, on this program, but um, mm-hmm. yeah, this really, it, this really uh, good idea, or I think interesting idea about, you know, Elon Musk and then people like that talk about the uh, simulation theory that they're living in a, in a computer or something like that. I know that you and I have talked about that before as well. It's definitely an interesting right, idea. Right. People like Nick uh, Borstrom, I think is his name, uh, wrote, you know, kind of a, a, a seminal paper on this idea. And, uh, you know, may, maybe only as he is, we'll, we'll have to get Nick on the program. We'll have to see if he's up for it. But uh, it, I, I like this we'll uh, quote. We'll see if we can put him in. Yeah, yeah, we'll see if we can make time for him. But uh, I like this this quote from this theme about determining what's real and what's fake is this idea of, of you know, reality is where the risk is. That what, what makes something real is that you, you can pay a price for being wrong. And that kind of reminded me of in, in The Matrix, remember, if you die in The Matrix, you die in real life. It's like in a way, it's like The Matrix was kind of real because like your decisions in The Matrix affected whether or not you were living as a person. So I thought that mm-hmm. was an interesting idea, and I just kind of wanted to bring that out uh, and uh, kind of get, get your talk on, uh, get your take on that. Yeah, re- reality is where the risk is. That, that's, that's interesting. I'm trying to trying to internalize that. So it's saying that reality is a place where consequences exist. I think I I think so. In, in other words, right? Yeah, exactly. That like in a dream. What, what makes a dream a dream is that when you die in a dream, you wake up, you know, if you punch somebody in a dream, it's, it's not real. You know, if I, uh, if I go into work and, uh, you know, punch my boss in the face or something, I'm, I'm going to pay a price for that. If I punch my boss in a dream, mm-hmm. I, it's, it's, it's nothing, you know. Uh, and I, and I, I kind of like that idea that, you know, even if at some level, you know, and I, I for anybody listening right now, is about to change the program. We are not going to spend the next hour talking about living in a computer program. I promise you. But, but let me. Yeah, forty-five me, minutes top. Yeah, but let me let me just say this. I I do I do like the idea that whatever we are living in, 
you know, we are living inside of something, whether it's, you know, whether this universe is what Elon would call base reality or not, we are living inside of something. I mean, I think that much is indisputable. To me, I can take solace in the fact that because as, as best, you know, as, as, as best aware as I am, you know, what I, what I do does have consequence and what I do does matter because it happened and what I do has effects. And so that is, is maybe a nice place to, to, to kind of root, um, you know, where, where you would begin to look for meaning is this idea of, 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 per, of the relationship between purpose and consequence. So the, the reason you are able to have a purpose in life is because you can affect change. And the reason mm-hmm. you can affect change is because your actions have consequences. I see. Uh, there's something I was recently reading by uh, another seldomly mentioned, seldomly mentioned character on this podcast, uh, Osho. Osho, and yes, yes. Describing a certain meditation technique, and yeah, Osho Rajneesh. Right. And the meditation technique—it's just training yourself to believe that reality is a dream. So this is this is kind of a, maybe I don't want to say at odds with what with what Nassim is saying. Maybe it's an agreement in some way, some indirect way. But he he was making the argument that you could just start pretending life is a dream, just so you don't take things so seriously, so you don't get so caught up in everything. Mm. And he says what he says. One of the claims he makes, and this is what I love about Osho, is that he says things that are they're pretty outlandish and they don't really make logical sense right off the bat but i i can feel some feel more direct truths underneath it for instance and you know he uses metaphors i don't think he really intends these things to be taken literally but sometimes you have to speak in a non-literal way to convey certain points and he was saying that we're constantly dreaming all day. It's kind of similar to like how the stars are always out, but the sunlight drains them out. So you can't see them during the day. But when you turn the lights off, sun goes down, you can see the stars. Same with dreaming. We're always dreaming. It's just at nighttime, all the other background noise gets removed and the dream is all you're left with. But I, I think that there's some peace in looking at reality as if it's a dream or it's not really that serious or like sure there'll be consequences, but the consequences may not necessarily be that dire depending on the situation. Like it, mm. just having, um, I think there, and I want to get your take. I mean, I think there could be some, some, some relaxation or some ease that comes from that paradigm. What do you, what do you think? I think that's definitely a point worth considering. And I, and I, and I, I, I wanted to actually tie this in. So you're going to laugh. I, so one of the movies I had written down on my, on my sheet today to go over is a uh, fight club, a movie that I, that I like, and that I all Inception. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So the, the thing that I like about, so let me, let me try to tie in to point about reality and risk. Osho's point about reality being a dream and fight club. And where I think all three of those things intersect. I think a great challenge that we have today is that it's very hard to determine what is and is not important. And the point that I would agree with you mm-hmm. about the dreaming is that if we think about the things we worry about all day long, some things probably really do matter. You know, if you're really sick, if you know someone who's really sick, you know, it, those, those kind of things certainly are important. 
if you're worrying about being a few minutes late to work, if you're worried about, you know, something silly on your computer not working, you know, if you think about all the things that you worry about in a given day, that in a week's time you won't even remember. In, in that case, I do think that there, there is a sense that if people took a step back, um, things wouldn't seem as important. And in, in, in fact, that, that ties in really well uh, with a point that uh, people like Cialdini make in basing it off of kind of the, the research of the, of the author of Thinking Fast and Slow, Daniel, uh, Daniel Kahneman, this idea that when you're thinking about something, it magnifies its importance. And so, you know, nothing is as important as it seems when you're thinking about it. When, when you're focused on something, your brain makes it more important. And I, I think that is a mental aspect that ties really in, in really well with that idea of reality and dreaming. That when we're thinking about something, it's hard to actually determine how much we should care about it. And I, I do get the sense, just thinking about my own life, that I, I do spend a fair amount of time worrying about things that in the long run don't matter and that even more importantly, I don't really have any control over. So there's really no point in me thinking about it anyways. And the, 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 the message, I mean, there are many messages mm -hmm. in, in, in uh, Fight Club, but the one of the messages that I think everybody could agree on is that if you are consistently worried about the state of your material possessions, then at some point, the things you own do end up owning you. And that is not a good place to be. Yeah. So in a lot of Eastern philosophy talks about not, not uh, pursuing these material goods and pursuing wealth and that type of thing. But I think that there's a couple different motivations for pursuing wealth. You know, obviously the, the most common one I believe is to, is for clout, you know, in other words, going on Instagram, showing off what you have, like saving up that money so you can buy that car and show off to everybody. But I think that there exists a different, a different, more sincere uh, drive for wealth. And that would be to give someone freedom because if you have money, uh, people can't really tell you what to do. Like they can't tell you what's time to wake up. If you have an independent um, way of making money or having wealth, uh, they can't tell you how to do things. It, it, it buys you freedom. You can then live different places because you're not anchored to a certain job site. And that freedom is what I'm driven to uh, definitely much more than and getting the, the flashiest toy to show off on my Instagram or my social media, et cetera. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I, I think, I think that mentality uh, co cohabitates really well with the idea of not letting the things you own own you. And the idea would be that pursuing wealth is good and wealth is good. What is bad is losing perspective and, and having that wealth turn poisonous by virtue of it becoming something that you identify yourself with as opposed mm -hmm. to something that you use for freedom. And I, I would say that that point about financial freedom is definitely a point that Nassim Taleb harps on frequently in, in his work, that basically like the greatest thing that, that he's able to afford now uh, from his own wealth is free time. And that he has a saying where mm -hmm. he's like, you, you basically measure someone's wealth by how much free time they have. That because Nassim has, has done well with his uh, risk strategy uh, that he formulated, he's made money and as a result, can now use that money for freedom. And so I totally agree with you that wealth is not the enemy by any, by, uh, any means, but what can become the enemy is becoming attached to the wrong things. Being attached to things like 
freedom and and free time and free thought uh, are are definitely good. Uh, being attached to like what you're saying to the the newest car, or the newest gadget, probably is not. Yeah, and then something else I heard about Nassim Tlaib. I want to get your take on. I heard that he. So he used to be early, earlier in his career. He used to be like a full time trader or investment trader, right? Right. Is that correct? Yeah, I, and, and I yes, yes. And since that point, he's he's essentially stopped trading or he's retired from trading, and it seems like he's more focused on maybe long term investing or some of his books or other enterprises. Is, would you say that's fair to say? You know, I. I, I want to be careful because I'm not too familiar with with like his up to date things he's working on. I know that he definitely had a career trading, and then at some point, I think him and a and a coworker or a a friend developed their own fund based off of some other trading strategies. Uh, and I I I want to say that I, I saw a picture of him on Twitter recently where he was saying that that he was trading, and so I. I don't know if it's something that he's completely walked away from, um, but certainly, you know, he's written now five books uh, that are that are not really about trading, but are about philosophy and kind of how to incorporate probability into philosophy. And um, it would be interesting to know, you know, kind of like his wealth breakdown between the books and, and the the trading. That would be interesting to to know. I, I will also mention, uh, which I don't think I mentioned this before, but he's also uh, written one for sure, maybe two uh, more technical books that like that are about trading or at least are about probability um, that, you know, at one point, if I really aspire to, you know, take kind of this, the, the, the plunge into black, black swan thinking, maybe I'll have to read one of these days, right now they're probably over my head. But um, I mean, he, he, he definitely, uh, to, to be able to write essentially a textbook and popular books, I, I think shows a pretty wide range of, of talent as far as writing goes. I know that in the past, you know, we're talking about the merge between a really good teacher as someone who is not only really smart, but can explain things really well. And it would be interesting. I mean, certainly I enjoy his, his more popular books. It'd be interesting to see uh, kind of how his other books uh, operate. And I, and again, I haven't read these. I don't, I don't know if they're really textbooks, but I, I do know that they're more technical than his more popular writings. Okay. So I, there is some evidence for, perhaps for Nassim that he is believes this way but I know a lot of other former traders and Nassim Taleb like he wrote the book on trading and he was that was his early career and I think it speaks a lot to say that that is no longer his center focus in life you know if, if hmm. trading was such a lucrative satisfying career I I'm not sure if you would have ventured out of that and I see that consistent with other traders as well and I guess the point I'm trying to get across is that it seems like you can't really make money off trading. You can make money off investing, but uh, trading it's at, at this point in the in day and age, it's just a rigged game. You're competing with, you're competing with these big firms and these big traders that pay billions and billions of dollars just to get microsecond advantages and getting trades across quicker. Like you may coincidentally pick a winner every now and then, but uh, over the long run, I mean, you're certainly not going to have, you're not, you're not going to beat, a market index for example unless yeah, you know I, something unless you have inside information <laughs> yeah definitely having the inside information always helps i i and i and i think you make a good point too about the market uh index funds you know, s&p or you know whatever ones you're looking at it's definitely not the case that you know certainly a novice is going to with any uh regularity beat the market and uh to do so would be a tremendous feat what what i mm -hmm. like about nasim so much is 
I think he takes a different perspective on what you're trying to accomplish with trading. That is, it's less about picking a winner and more about uh, trying to prevent ruin losses and understanding uh, the, the real nature of risk involved with trading. And I think what he would argue is that for a long time, um, what people assumed to basically be impossible was in fact not impossible. And so there, it wasn't so much about picking and winning, uh, I'm sorry, picking the winners and losers. It was more about understanding something broader, uh, which to, to his credit, uh, you know, he was able to, to, to show worked. And so definitely in that case, I think, uh, you know, there was some knowledge entering the game that uh, wasn't there before, or, or at least wasn't uh, wasn't as obvious to other people. Mm-hmm. But yeah, definitely. I uh, I think that would be a very hard life being a day trader on uh, stocks. I think that would be very very challenging, to say the least. Well, I, I I don't even think that career realistically exists unless you have some advantage that no one else has. Yeah, if you're the uh, if you're the the next, you know, super super mathematical with you know computer sciences slash you know born with a phd you know maybe maybe i think there for the, the rest of us mortals it, it seems like a very challenging <laughs> challenging path in life yeah but, but uh, then again even if you do have that data science background like the market mm-hmm. is highly irrational so I, I don't even know if those those players true would be successful yeah true you would have to yeah and that, that, and that's a good point too and you know what what can appear to be data is actually just noise and so you know is it, there mm-hmm. definitely the case um i let me let me just end on one one more little point that i had jotted down uh on here which was about having backup plans and this isn't really anything to talk about much today i was on a zoom call today and uh, we were doing a a presentation over zoom and uh the last minute the group decided to email the slides out to the host instead of just relying on the host being able to co-host the meeting. And uh, sure enough on zoom meetings running fine and everything's working all of a sudden they can't share the host, but because we had sent the slides to the host, they were able to, to, to share their own screen. And uh, it was speaking about risk right now. And I was just thinking, you know, that was so easy to do. And I'm so glad that we did it, but just a reminder to our listeners, uh, look for easy ways to uh, have backup plans. Um, look for easy ways to uh, have something go wrong and to not derail the whole plan. And if it's just something as simple as having a spare tire in your trunk, if it's something as simple as never letting your tank get below half and in terms of gasoline in your car, if it's something as simple as uh, you know having backup slides for a presentation, look for look for little things like that. I think the, you'll you'll reap benefits in the end. Uh, I, I feel kind of silly mentioning it, but I it, I had it today and I was so glad that we had it. It just it made a what could have been a very stressful meeting actually go up pretty, pretty soon. Yeah. And that can make a big difference in terms of uh, like job interviews, for example, like that all these job interviews are over online meeting platforms now like zoom. So mm-hmm. even if it's just sitting down 10 minutes before your interview and just making sure everything logs in, right. You know, get all your computer updates out of the way, uh, you know, make sure your battery is charged. Like, you know, sometimes you got to restart your computer before it even works. So right. that's just right. like a no brainer. Just calling in like 10 minutes before something to, especially for some high profile or yeah, or high criticality, like a job interview. Oh, so that's actually really, so seeing as we're talking about Nassim Tlemes, I'll keep on talking about him. So he has this funny question that he, he asked people to kind of get their, their risk taking profile. And, and basically the, the question goes like this, how early do you arrive to the interview for your absolute dream job? Mm-hmm. And people would say, Oh, 
10 minutes, 15 minutes. And like when they give an answer like that, they don't understand risk. Like if it's your, if it's actual your dream job, you get there as early as you effing can. It's your dream job. Why would you let anything get in the way of that? Why would you, no one know traffic can be bad. You make it a flat tire. Like if it's your dream job, you get there early, not 10 minutes, not 15 minutes early. Like that's the whole point yeah. of the question. And it's funny because like you'll, you'll, you'll see him ask smart people that question and they'll totally get the answer on. You know, oh, 10 minutes, 15 minutes. <laughs> yeah, Bruh. it's a... Bruh. <laughs> so Jocko, Jocko Willink, the the retired Navy SEAL who was a BUDS instructor and just as badass as a, a Navy SEAL as it gets, he, he would always say, he has this one interview where he's talking and he said, yeah, in my 20 years in the Navy, I, guess how many times I was late? He was like, zero. I've never been late in my entire career for anything. He said, like, yeah, I would get to late. I would get to work so early that I could get T-boned on the way to work. You know, have a quick hospital visit and get to work <laughs> on time for my first right. meeting. Yeah. Um, but that something to balance that off with, and I don't know if you've experienced this, but uh, like certain tests, like if there's a big exam or a big interview or big something that you got to do, uh if I get there too early, I find myself just in a place where I'm just sitting there in anticipation of the event to happen. And it right, kind of right. fucks with my mental space. And, uh, I don't, I don't know if that's just, uh, you know, it just gives you time to sit there and think about it. And there's a certain degree of time dilation in events like that. I don't know if you've experienced it like before, before big events, like big parties or big, you know, interviews or exams, there's like a, a form of time dilation where you're just sitting there waiting for something to happen. And it just feels like, you know, 15 minutes would feel like hours at that point. Right. Right. And, and that could screw up your headspace. Like some of my best interviews or some of my best, I don't know, performances in general, maybe when I just roll up, you know, almost late, not late, but just almost late, fresh off some other activity and just keeping that momentum going, not giving myself time to like second guess my what's coming up. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I, and I definitely agree with you. And I, I like, so kind of this reminds me of the uh, Scott Adams take on slippery slopes that there really are no slippery slopes because you always have two competing forces. And so in, in this case, you would have the two competing forces of you want to be early enough that you're never late, but you want to be you know late enough that you're not sitting there in a, in a, a, a tent a week before your interview, freaking out, growing <laughs> a dirty beard and, you know, eating canned beans and everything else. So there's definitely going to be a, a, a trade-off. It's funny. I, cause when I read that, the same quote, I was like, you know, like what, what is the earliest I could arrive and not really freak out? And I, I was yeah. kind of thinking through the, uh, through the uh, same thing, but it's funny that, so Jocko gives the right answer because surely a Navy still doesn't understand risk, right? Like he's probably experienced more risk than hopefully any of us ever do. So it's, yeah. it's funny that, that you see Jocko's mentality and uh, Nassim's on risk line up perfectly with each other. And I, that's exactly what you would expect for people that have to do with risk in the real world. Um, yeah, and, I, and I love that question. That's a, it's a, it's a great question. I'm going to try and yes. think of a better answer for next week. <laughs> yes. Yes. I um, definitely go. I had, I had one more thing on here, but I'm, I'm, I'm going to say that I have Marilyn Manson in the meaning of the counterculture. I found this. I found this great uh, old, old recording of Marilyn Manson playing in Houston, Texas, in like 1996, and this is back in like prime Manson years. You know, it, you know, back when he was as skinny as a toothpick and just looked like he was dying. I mean, it was just 
you know, just quintessential Marilyn Manson. I watched this whole thing. I thought that was just perfect. It, um, I was trying to wrap my head around, you know, this idea of like, you know, late nineties counterculture and you know, what, what that meant and everything. But I don't want to spend more time on that today. We're getting a little low on time as it is. And I, and I, I do want to share, I, I did write a, a short little essay uh, today that I wanted to share on the program. Um, so let me, let me go ahead and transition to that. Now we'll talk about this for a little bit and then we'll go ahead and close out, uh, this episode. Um, Episode number eight, our, our two month anniversary. So, uh, very Aww. good. Let me yes, let me let me switch over to to this essay here. So, this essay is called Counterpoise. It was a cool and crisp night. My wife falling asleep in my arms, whispering sweet nothings. Every conversation is the universe talking to itself. The road trip is the purest manifestation of contemporary masculinity when the family sleeps with the assurance that dad will get everyone home. These little dramas live all around us. These perfect little moments continuously etching into the cosmos. In every moment, a hero waits to be born. Bury the dead, pray for the living. When it comes to road trips, I have big shoes to fill. My dad possesses the iron bladder of fatherhood lore. Bathroom breaks were purely for the benefit of the family. Sure, he might have had to have gone to the bathroom himself, but this was mostly to prevent the rest of us from feeling inferior. As my wife and I continued sailing down the roadway, I let my mind wander to yesteryears. I was 13. A last-minute storm track showed a hurricane barreling straight for our town. A mandatory evacuation was issued and our family loaded into the car. Approximately four hours later, and I had a bit of a problem. Between my clenched thighs and pressing hands, 100% humidity and 98.6 degree Fahrenheit turned my jeans into a hot towel from the barber. My legs began bouncing and my blood pressure skyrocketed. Could I just let out a little peep? Just a drop? It was a risky move. One muscle fiber out of sync, and that's the game, folks. But I had to try. Just a little burst of the relief valve. Muscles began relaxing. My grip waned. But then, from the heavens, a gentle voice of a guardian angel. Honey, I need to stop. Okay, we can get off at the next exit. Could I make it? Well, are we to sacrifice our future? To remain stagnant in the shadows of the past? Or will we venture to greater heights? to slay giants so that we may stand on their shoulders. I wished to fight. I wished to live. I chose to make it to the next exit. A few moments later, and we had arrived. A sigh of relief. The car pulled over. I ran inside, the air feeling extra cool against the sweat of my brow and palms. After the bathroom break, I felt like a million bucks. The perfect mood for picking out snacks. As I have gotten older, I believe more and more in purchasing snacks solely based on their generation of finger residue. But this was before I was older. So I went for Flaming Hot Cheetos, a nemesis mentioned on this program more than once. And the drink? There was and always will be one best road trip combination. First off, get a bottle of water. Sustenance. Nobody wants to be that chump stealing sips from the more prepared fellow travelers. But the real treat of the road trip, the slushy. Note, 
Icy is a brand name. And since they are not a sponsor of the program, we won't be saying Icy, a delicious frozen and carbonated concoction, anymore on this program. Now, I'll let some of the humble readers in on a little secret that I learned recently. You can purchase a slushie anytime you want. In fact, similar to sparkling cider, which typically only makes appearances during special events, slushies can be purchased for any reason at all. Now, don't go apeshit and start buying a slushie every time you go to the gas station. I'd recommend no more than two slushies a week. I don't remember how that particular night ended, only that it ended the same way countless other road trips did, arriving safely at our location, never having to worry. The most wonderful gift that I received from my parents was childhood. I returned focus to the road, my wife now asleep, our dog the same, resting soundly on the notion that their journey was taken care of. Older, wiser, more confident, and with a larger bladder, the rest of the trip was in good hands. How many moments are occurring in this world? How many in the universe? How many people on strange planets are falling in love? How many people on strange worlds wonder what it all means? I am proud to be among their numbers. Save this world for the living. Save this living world. This living world, it's a beautiful idea. Very good, very good. Thank you, thank another, you, thank you. Another excellent piece. Uh, this time more concerned around, uh, maybe I'd label it more of a travel philosophy piece. You know, I, I think it's, it's holidays and I know uh, some people may be out on the road traveling. We want to remind them to drive safe. If you, do need, if you do need to stop, definitely stop. If you're tired, pull over. If you need to go to the bathroom, go to the bathroom. But, uh, you know, I was one of those kids that, you know, their dad could just go coast to coast without ever having to go to the bathroom. And as I've gotten older, you know, I, I've used that as a bit of inspiration to live up to. Yeah, and this is this is actually something that I, who's someone who spends a lot of time in my vehicle and uh, you know commutes to and from work or maybe long trips, uh, it's something I battle with as well. Is you know you're trying to stay hydrated because mm. once you go dehydrated, it's just a cascade of bad effects happen. Absolutely. So to stay hydrated and uh, not inconvenience yourself too much during road trips, it's a tough thing. And even during, like I said, during my commute to work. Uh, and something I do, and this might be unpopular with some of our listeners, but I, I carry a Gatorade bottle right in my car, right in the driver's side pocket, right there, just in case, you know, it's, it, sometimes you're on a freeway and there's exits and it's bumper to bumper and you can't get out. Like, what, what do you do at that point? Right, right. Um, and that's why I recommend the wide mouth Gatorade bottle. Yep. Just have one on hand. If, the, you know, if it come push comes to shove, you can just, you can use it. And and don't be discouraged if you don't have one of those. I, I've used uh, standard soda cans before with uh, varying degrees of success. But yeah, the act of, of having to use the bathroom on the road. Um, ha have you had any close encounters or other close experiences with, uh, I don't know, number one or number two? On oh, the oh, absolutely. 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 Look, I don't think you're going to be an American without having a close call. You know, we're, th th this is a big country. You know, we have highways, freeways that span the whole nation. 
And uh, somebody whose family very much believed that a penny saved is a penny earned. We made more than one trip over multiple state lines. So holding it definitely uh, was, a, was, was a, a, a requisite for being a, a member of the Hackett family. Um, you, you had to be able to hold it. And I, as I've gotten older, it's definitely a, a skill that I appreciate having is this idea that I can sit in a car, know that I have to go to the bathroom, at the same time, not panic, that I, that I know that I have the, the, the confidence to hold it, the, the confidence to make it. Um, I, I will say, you know, just one story that I'll, that I'll share. It didn't involve a road trip, but it involved a fourth grade classroom. Before nice. I was in fourth grade, Mrs. Phelps' class, wonderful teacher, and I had to go to the bathroom. Now, I went to a uh, private school, and we had uniforms, and the pants of this private school did not have buttons but they had a clasp, they had a metal clasp. Metal clasps are dangerous because with a button, worst case scenario, you, you, you just pop that button right off. You know, a button doesn't stand a chance against the agile hands of a fourth grader. But a clasp is made of metal. And these pants in particular must have been some kind of, you know, military battle grade uniform. I mean, they, it felt like the zipper was reinforced carbon fiber, the, the, the clasp could survive a gunshot. I run to the bathroom as fast as I can stuttering, stammering with my feet, trying to get these damn pants off, and the clasp is stuck. And so I ended up peeing my pants, and I just mm -hmm. had to sit in the bathroom, dab it up with some paper towels, and then go back to the classroom and sit down. You know, I don't think I'll ever sit in a grade school classroom chair without wiping it down first, because I sure as hell didn't wipe mine down, and I doubt anybody else did either. Yeah, and let me ask you this. This is something that I've experienced experience that when you do have to pee real bad and it, you can't wait any longer uh most of the time uh the, the the pee is very dilute you know you're usually in a very hydrated stage at that point right so right. you know like a little drop there a little spill there it's it's really not that big of a deal in the grand scheme of things as right. opposed to if you had you know maybe leaked out a little bit uh with uh when you were dehydrated and you right. had that dark that dark yellow hue like that that's when you yeah. start running into trouble that's where you got to be super diligent about the cleanup you know what i mean yeah absolutely and, and, and you make a and, and a really a, a great point not all urine is the same and that, that that's yeah. something that our, our our viewers need to remember not all urine is the same um and, you know, that's something that we can all be forgiving to each other. You know, all of us are going to have little spills, little, little dribs from time to time. No one's perfect. You know, no one has a perfectly sealing valve on the end of their urethra. So we're all going to have little drips and drabs. And what all of us need to do is just chill the fuck out and get on with life. That's my take. Yeah, I could, couldn't have said it better. Um, let me see. What else do I have in my notes here? Um. So something I want to go into a little bit deeper, you're talking about road trips and specifically some of the challenges of road trips. Uh, we right. mentioned some of the, the, the urination aspects of that, mm. but I, want, I wanted to get your thoughts on road trips with the respect of being, uh, in essence, the ultimate stress test for relationships, you know, whether, oh, whether it's relationship yes. with your dog, with oh. your wife, with your family. Yeah. It really brings out a lot of unplanned events and occurrences and things that happen yeah. that can put a lot of stress on the system and re really show some true colors. Uh, what, what do you think about that? 
that that is an excellent analysis. In fact, it builds off of some analysis that probably done about a decade ago in Seinfeld with the idea that really just any trip is going to be a pressure cooker for your relationship. And <laughs> I, I really couldn't agree more about that. I mean, I I think the road trip in particular, listen, there is there is nothing, you know, unless you're a combat veteran, unless you unless you survived cancer, unless you've escaped some kind of awful POW camp. The most stressful thing any normal person will probably do is drive in bad traffic. You know, that's, you know, today Mm -hmm. that's the real test of grit for, for people and nothing, nothing brings out the worst in people than bad drivers. And really a good test of character is seeing how much people freak out and if they get road rage or not during events, I, for one, do not get road rage. You know, I'm a pretty high energy person, drink a lot of caffeine. And yet I still don't get road rage. Um, other people, maybe they're low energy, but they still get road rage. You know, that road rage kills people. People die because of it. And it's also not a good look. So it's something that we all should work on. And, and especially when it comes to relationships, be mindful that however much anyone's annoying you in a car, divide that by about a thousand. That's how you would feel in normal circumstances. You know, don't break up over a road trip. Don't break up during a road trip. I, I really can't say that enough. It's a long drive home. Oh, it's a long, yes. And don't, yes, absolutely right. Absolutely right. You know, any, any fight that happens behind the wheel of a car, give yourself a day, revisit it without a car present, see how you really feel about the situation. Yeah, like a, a little story of my own. I was driving home not too long ago from work and I was on, it's a three lane highway. Or freeway. I still don't know the difference between a highway and a freeway. No one but, does. Yeah, <laughs> three-lane highway. We'll go with that. And I'm driving in the left lane because obviously I don't like getting slowed down in the right two lanes. Right. But th- there's not that much traffic there. And I'm going, you know, maybe speed limit plus or plus five miles per hour or so. Like I'm not, I'm not zooming through there, but I'm going a little above the speed limit. Hmm. And you know, I'm zoning out, like I'm listening to podcasts or I'm listening to music or talking on the phone or something. And then next thing I know, I see, I look at my review mirror and I see like, there's all this car that's just tailgating me. And then before I can do anything, I see him, you know, shake his head and turn on his blinker and get into the middle lane and pass me from the middle lane. Right, and as right. he's passing me, obviously, you know, he just flicks me off, gives me a good bird. Yep. yep. She shakes his hand in disgust. And I'm like, I've never felt compelled to do something like that in my life. Like, like just think about that. Like it, it, is it inconveniencing him that much to go into the middle lane and just pass me? Like, right. uh, Like in, like, is that really worthy of flipping someone off? Like what's my crime there? I'm going the speed limit plus a few miles per hour. And you know, normally I like to, when I'm in the left lane, I like to be going at least seven to 10 over. But in this case, for whatever reason, I wasn't, but what what is it with cars and roads like it just compels people to react that way yeah and i i, I think i I've, I've heard somewhere that the reason is because humans just are not meant to think at that speed that mm. you know we're just not meant to comprehend the world that's 60 miles per hour um which makes some sense to me i mean driving is is you know as far as a again a normal person what's the most dangerous thing you do all day you know, well, if you cut out the part where, you know, you masturbate behind a bunch of razor blades in a shower or something, you know, it's probably going to be driving, right? I mean, it's probably going to be the most dangerous thing you do. Like, you know, unless you're beating off near a high voltage, you know, power line, probably the most dangerous thing that you're doing on a daily basis is going to be driving your, your uh, damn car. 
Yeah. So it makes sense that we'd be a little stressed out about that. Um, but really, it's just, I always like to think, you know, when I'm about to do something that might be embarrassing, I, I like to think, how am I going to feel 10 seconds later? It's like if I got road rage and I was like yelling at somebody in my car and I was flipping them off and, you know, being mean and flashing my brights and everything, how am I going to feel 10 seconds later? Am I going to feel like I won some important battle that I won some important argument or am I going to feel like a complete fucking idiot? I think I'm going to feel like the latter and very rarely the former. Yeah. And that's, that's the part of it too. Like once he pulled up next to me and flipped me off, I was like, Oh, this motherfucker, I'm going to come up behind him and I'm going to tailgate him and I'm going to pass him and I'm going to stay in this lane and not back, lay them back in. Like that was like my first instincts, but then it's right. like, uh, for what? Like I'm just risking, you know, creating an accident or creating some way that I'm liable for something like, right. No, I just, just let it go. But it's yes. easier said than, than done, obviously. Yes, yes. And, and, and really a, a, a perfect example of uh, tail risk that, you know, what is the what is the the asymmetry? It's like I might win some really good road rage battle or I could die or they could die. It's just it very quickly is not worth it. Of course, no one thinks it is. It's, it's just they're acting emotionally first. Um, but yeah, driving, I, I think really the the best benefit of having a self-driving car is just going to be this, the, the reduction of that stress. You know, it's commuting, mm. will, commuting will always suck, but boy, it's like if you got to use that hour or so reading or just sleeping and not being stressed, I think we'd all be a lot better off. Yeah. And, and driving takes it really takes it out of you. Like I know that after road, like road trips or driving all day, like there's few things that wear me out more than just driving. Same with flying too. Yeah, flying is flying is, is is tough. I mean, flying is tough because it's just you, you literally just can't do anything. You're stuck in a seat. You know, there's not yeah. a lot of fun on an airplane. So, yeah, driving, traveling is uh, you know, for 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 us who can't afford our private jets and our and our you know self-driving cars, you know, driving, commuting is a uh, is a drudgery. I mean, that was you know, all those remember being 16, really excited about being able to drive, and about a week later, it's like. Yeah, this just sucks. That's all there is. This is just actually just an, now it's just a chore. Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. Very good, very good. Yes, and I and I, you know, if anybody wants to battle me over the uh, the best snack choices for a road trip, like I said, I've I've graduated more and more to minimizing finger residue. I think that that has long lasting uh, benefits. Keeps your car clean. Uh, some other benefits as well. And I and I I do think that. Uh, Get a get a water bottle. You know, we were talking about hydration earlier on the program. It's important. If you're on a road trip, get a water bottle. I know you're gonna gonna want to go for a slushy and that kind of thing. And go ahead, really go ahead. But get yeah, a water bottle. Too. Go try ahead, to get, get a, a wide, wide wide mouth water bottle just in case. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And when you, and when you have one, keep it in your car. Keep it in your car. <laughs> Very good. Well, Joe, that was that was my essay for this episode. Um, any other points you want to add before we? Uh, before we sign up i think that i think that wraps it up very good well humble listeners for that are here joining us on episode number eight we really are excited uh that you're joining that you're listening uh sharing our content joining uh or following us on twitter going to our website again both of those just really quickly the twitter at roses underscore rhetoric and the website www.rosesandrhetoric.com 
www.thebigbrainmindset.com. Eight episodes down, plenty more ahead of us. Going to have lots of good content coming out. We're trying to get stuff on there, uh, you know, at least once a week, probably a little more than that, actually, uh, when it's all said and done. Uh, so continue to check that out frequently and feel free to engage with, us, engage with us on there as well. But until next time, this is Jimmy Hackett signing off for Joseph Stanford. Ciao.